If you keep your Bibles open, we're going to be traveling through a number of scripture passages to look at the life of Philip. And I'd like to start off first by talking about a mistaken identity. It happened to me a number of years ago, a very prominent Christian retreat organization got in contact with me and asked if I would send my resume to them along with my, uh, with my headshot for the upcoming conference. And if I had my title and text, that would be even more helpful. I kind of pulled a blank and I said, well, uh, excuse me, but could you just refresh my memory? When is this conference? Oh, oh, it's six months from now. I said, oh, um, and could you tell me what the theme is? And she said, sure, of course. And so she looked it up and she told me the theme. And I said, you know, as we're talking, I think perhaps you have mistaken me for another person whose name is very similar. My name is Carol Wynn, but I think you are meaning Dr. Carlton Wynn. Uh, we share the last name. Our name, Carol and Carlton, sound very similar. However, he at that time was a professor at Westminster Seminary. I think you may have gotten us mixed up. So after a few minutes, I confess that I was very pleased by the mistaken identity of someone who is much younger, more intelligent, and very handsome. She phoned back a couple of days later to say that indeed it had been a case of mistaken identity and Carlton was the speaker. I say all of that because I didn't know before I studied this that in my mind I had just thought Philip was Philip was Philip. All of the Philips are the same person, correct? Except sometimes in scripture we don't have their last name or there's something else that's going on. But you know the Philip I was meaning. You know the Philip from, from well, the book of Acts, right? The Philip who goes down and finds a eunuch who is who is wrestling with Isaiah, gets into the carriage with him and leads him to the Lord, to faith in Jesus Christ. What a story. But that's not the Philip we're talking about. How do we know? Well, actually, if you look in chapter 6 of Acts, you'll see that there is a Philip who is there when Stephen is uh, martyred. And right after that, that Stephen is taken somewhere else. And in chapter 8, we hear how he is in a, a city and he is sharing the gospel and people come to Christ. But here's an interesting passage. In chapter 8, verse 16, 17, and 19, it said that as soon as the Christians heard that the Samaritans, that was where Philip was in Samaritan territory, the Samaritans were the mix of Jew and Gentile, so they were considered kind of half-breeds. So the pure Jews in Jerusalem, when they heard that the Gentiles or the Samaritans had heard the gospel and had received the gospel, but did not receive the Holy Spirit, they immediately dispatched Peter and John, two of the apostles, to go up so that they might lay hands on them and that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why would there be the need if there was already an apostle, the apostle Philip, there? You see, it's a, it's a different person with different spiritual gifts. The reason I want to do that is because then we can really kind of straighten out who we're looking at and who we can say was really pursuing God, pursuing God wholeheartedly. You know, it's an apt title for the apostle Philip. He was able to spend three and a half years with Jesus. And during that, we have these four vignettes from his life. 
And we learn something about Philip, but more than that, we learn something about Jesus Christ because he makes a declaration of who he is, not only through his actions, but the way that he deals with Philip. So the first would be back at John chapter 1. You probably are familiar with this. You may not need to turn, but I'd suggest you might. You might want to look at this just to be able to see that Philip was there and he was with John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is different from John the Evangelist, or excuse me, John the Apostle. Am I confusing you now? John the Baptist is different from John the Apostle. We all know that, right? That doesn't need to be explained out. So this was John the Baptist who was baptizing prior to Jesus, who was the cousin of Jesus. And he is baptizing, and a number of people have come around him. And we know that two of those were Philip, uh, Peter and Andrew. They were there. There was a good chance that Philip and Nathaniel were also there. Why? Because in the three days, that three day of infamy for John the Baptist, we suddenly hear that John saw Jesus and immediately identifies him as the Lamb of God and the Son of God. Lamb of God, verse 29, Son of God, verse 34, all according to the prophecy that had been revealed to him, verse 33. Now, day two, when Jesus appears again, verse 35, two disciples, presumably who had been following John the Baptist, heard Jesus again, heard John again refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God, and they went to follow him, verse 37. One of the two is Andrew, who immediately grabs his brother, Simon Peter, announcing, we have found the Messiah, verse 40 and 41. Now, on day three, Jesus recruits Philip, who is from the city of Bethsaida, and Nathanael. And Philip entices Nathanael to meet Jesus with these words, the rabbinical words, well, Why don't you come and see if something good can come out of Nazareth? Now, here's the interesting part. If you look in verse 45, look at the wording that is specifically there, because this is what's so interesting. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Why would he refer back to the law of Moses? What had that got to do with anything? Or does it have to do with everything? You see, what we learned from Philip is he was well-versed in the Old Testament. But why was he there with John the Baptist? Had he made the same mistake that the Jews who had come from Jerusalem also had? They came out from Jerusalem to find out What was going on with this character, John the Baptist? People were flooding out, and they didn't know who he was. They questioned him. Who are you? Are you the Messiah? He said, no, I'm not the Messiah. Well, are you the prophet that's supposed to come before the Messiah? And he answers with the words of Isaiah, I'm the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. You know, it must have been frustrating But in that enigmatic answer, he actually gave the exact focus that they needed to hear. In other words, there was something spiritual going on. It had been predicted by God in prophecy, and now you're seeing it actually come to fact. But what was it they heard when John said, I'm not him, there he is? It's interesting that John says there's the Lamb of God. 
What was Moses specifically supposed to do? He was giving the law. And how were we not able to fulfill the law as sinners? We needed the perfect sacrifice. We needed the Lamb of God. Philip was pursuing God. He was going because he understood that John the Baptist was the next person to help him in his pursuit. He knew that there was something spiritually special about what John was doing at the River Jordan, and he went to see. And John just said, there he is. And Philip goes, thanks, gotcha. We're taking off from here. You see, what Philip understood Jesus declaring is, I am the one who will save you. I will save you. The second is from chapter 6 of John. We're going to move over. I did not realize that Enrique Leal was preaching on this exact same passage this afternoon. I hope I get it right. It's interesting that as we turn to it, this again is where we learn about Jesus in his relationship with the disciples. He relates to them as men. Uh, A little lesson, if you ever want to get the attention of a man, you challenge him. And that's what he did. Jesus went up to him and said, hey, Philip, where can we buy bread for all of these people? And Philip, being a man, being a problem solver, having the challenge put in his lap, being the local boy, remember this happened at the north side of the Sea of Tiberias or Sea of Galilee. He was only a few clicks from his hometown of Bethsaida. And so he was going, uh, um, you know, there's a big crowd here, Jesus. Maybe we could break them up, you know, and send them off. And Jesus kind of baits him because it actually says in the text, Jesus asked this to test him. To test him? To test the impossible? You see, it's interesting that just how the disciples responded. They responded to the physical need that was set before them. They believed that was the challenge that Jesus had given them. But they had been with Jesus long enough, he was pressing them far beyond what they could see. He wanted them to see more. And they just were not able Here's the thing that's interesting, is as they were having this meal prepared for them by Jesus, Jesus takes the physical, he prays for the spiritual, and through spiritual power, he is able to multiply the physical for the spiritual goal of providing for the well-being of all who are present. Now, I want to just pause there to be able to once again just say we're not trying to divide the physical and the spiritual, but rather to understand the nexus of the two of them where they come together. This was not as though he conjured it up out of thin air. Jesus didn't. Rather, by spiritual power, he was able to extend all of the food so that there was plenty for everyone who was there. But what was he declaring? Jesus was declaring, I will take care of your well-being. 
Now, you, so sometimes we'll say, okay, yeah, I see, I understand that. But you see, this goes far beyond what, goes, what we see. Because in the passage, the response of the people were, hey, here's a king. He, he, let's put him in power. He's going to keep us fed forever. They missed the point. Though they understood that there was something authoritative and powerful about what he did. But you see, here is the thing. If we do not understand this nexus between the physical and spiritual, we'll miss out on Christ's death on the cross. We'll assume he was just punished because people did something wrong. You see, in the same way, we consider that his resurrection from the dead was, wow, that was miraculous. Instead of recognizing that as the purposeful intersection of the spiritual and the physical, By that intersection, Christ's death paid for our penalty. By that intersection, his resurrection says that that was acceptable and now we have life. By that intersection, we by faith may join in. Because he has said that he will take care of our well-being. He will watch over us not only in the physical, but also in the spiritual. I want to give a very difficult illustration of this. It's one that I've wrestled with for many years. I heard it when I was a college student. Urbana Mission Conference was a special event that was held during the ancient times of the past. When I was in college, students would gather out in Urbana, Champlain, Illinois, in the dead of winter. It was the week after Christmas that we would go out for a mission conference. On this time, there were somewhere between 10 and 12,000 college students, university students, all gathered in their large stadium, and we would listen to speakers. There was one that year that destroyed us. No, she devastated our misconceptions about God. Her name was Dr. Helen Rosevere. Dr. Rosevere was a physician, uh, a Scottish physician, who worked in the Belgian Congo. For those of you who don't know, many years ago, the country of Congo was not a republic. It was a colony of Belgium. But in the 60s, early 60s, yes, I was alive back then. In the early 60s, a war broke out in that country, a civil war, and it was bloody and it was dangerous. But foreigners, pale faces, were basically safe until year four of the rebellion, and then the rebels turned against them. In two months' time, 200 Catholic nuns and priests were murdered, along with 250,000 Africans. One night, the rebels marched into Helen Rosevere's compound at the hospital, And they broke into her home. And they took her back to her bedroom to beat her unmercifully. She testified in her heart that she had a conversation with the Lord in that moment. I had to go back and actually reread as well as listen to it because I had, it was hard to believe. But here was the conversation that she shared numerous times. 
she hears Jesus say, can you thank me for this? Helen responded, no. Jesus persists, can you thank me for trusting you for what is about to happen? Helen then replied, I thought I was to trust you to protect me from this violence. But now you're telling me to thank you for the trust you're placing in me to endure this for you? Yes, said the Lord. I want you to thank me for this. All I want from you is the loan of your body. The rebels are fighting me. Will you thank me for this, even if I never tell you why? Yes, Lord, I will trust you. And then in Helen's words, with that, I was flooded with enormous peace of God, the love of God, the presence of my Savior. Helen shares, this did not minimize the great pain, humiliation, cruelty, but I was overwhelmed by the joy of being with Jesus. She has often been asked the question, why the God of love allows such suffering? And Helen says, I never asked that question and so didn't have an answer. Lord, you are so wonderful and marvelous, and it's such a privilege to have you as my master, Lord, and King. I'll do anything for you. Now, this is a similar testimony to many who have been martyred through the centuries. They talk about in that moment that they have felt so close to their Lord, that they have seen the Lord, that they have been encouraged spiritually to be able to endure whatever would come because the Lord was with them. The Lord was stating that he would help them through that time if they would trust him and give themselves over to him. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual worship. I don't know if we really understand the meaning of that until we hear the story of someone like Helen. Or perhaps we need another refresher from Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The feeding of the 5,000 is infinitesimal in comparison to the physical death and resurrection of Christ that hailed his spiritual and salvific victory. Jesus is declaring, I will provide for your well-being through my death and resurrection. I will live in you. The third vignette is from chapter 12 of John. This is when, um, it's just after the triumphal entry. Do you remember that day? We read it so often, especially around Easter. Jesus comes into Jerusalem as a prophet, as a wonderful prediction of what God has already set out. He is on a colt, a donkey. And as he comes in, he heads up to the temple area. And there he sees 
the money changers, and his anger flares. And suddenly he overturns all of the money changers, and he goes out. The next day is what we read in chapter 12, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. Now, here's the interesting thing. What prompted the Greeks' interest in being able to talk to Jesus? And I would suggest that it was because of the day before when he went in and cleared out the temple. And part of it is because I don't think we understand the temple well enough. If you have a Bible that has some pictures in the back, that might help. But let me try to give you a verbal picture of it. There were some courtyards that were outside. And during that time, there would be, well, let me just read a description from a very prominent scholar There was a wide outer space called the Court of the Gentiles. Into it, anyone, Jew or Gentile, might come. At the inner edge of the Court of the Gentiles was a low wall with tablets set into it which said that if a Gentile passed that point, the penalty was death. The next court was called the Court of the Women. It was so called because unless women who had come actually to offer sacrifices, they might not proceed further. And next was the Court of the Israelites. In it, the congregation gathered on great occasions, and from it, the offerings were handed by the worshipers to the priests. The innermost court was called the court of the priest. This incident, where Jesus clears out the temple of the money changers, took place in the court of the Gentiles. Bit by bit, the court of the Gentiles had become almost entirely secularized. It had been meant to be a place of prayer and preparation, but there was, in the time of Jesus, a commercialized atmosphere of buying and selling, which made prayer and meditation impossible. What made it worse was that the business which went on there was sheer exploitation of the pilgrims. Every Jew had to pay a temple tax of one-half a shekel a year. That was equivalent to nearly two days' wages for a working man. That text had to be paid in one particular kind of coinage. For ordinary purposes, Greek, Roman, Syrian, Egyptian, Phoenician, and Tyrian coinages were all equal and valid. But this tax had to be paid in shekels of the sanctuary. It was paid at the Passover time. Jews came from all over the world to the Passover and with all kinds of currencies. When they came to have their money changed, they had to pay a fee. And should their coin exceed the tax, they had to pay another fee before they got their change. Most pilgrims had to pay this extra commission before they could pay their tax, and the commission amounted to half a day's wages, which for most people was a great deal of money. As for the sellers of doves, doves entered largely into the sacrificial system. A sacrificial victim had to be without blemish. Doves could be brought cheaply enough outside, but the temple inspectors would be sure to find something wrong with them, and worshipers were advised to buy them at the temple stalls. The price for a pair of doves inside could be as much as 15 times the price that might be paid outside. Again, it was sheer imposition. And what made matters worse was that this business of buying and selling belonged to the family of Annas, who had been high priest. 
Jews themselves were well aware of this abuse. The Talmud tells us that Rabbi Simon ben Gamaliel, on hearing that a pair of doves inside the temple cost a gold piece, insisted that the price be reduced to a silver piece. It was the fact that poor, humble pilgrims were being swindled, which moved Jesus to wrath. Yes, it was the exploitation of the pilgrims, but Jesus' anger was even more. What did he say as he was clearing that out? Do you remember the words? They're from the prophet Isaiah. He said, don't you know that my house, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. He was quoting from Isaiah 56, 7. Jesus, in his anger, was saying, I will remove the impediments to worship, to true worship. Think about this through the life of Jesus. He not only did it and the Greeks recognized and they wanted to talk to this man who understood what true worship was and why they were there. Remember, these were Greeks. They were not people who had converted to Judaism. These were Greeks who came to worship the true God. Jesus wanted to remove the impediments. You know, it's interesting as we start looking at some of the ways that Jesus helps to remove impediments that we get around to some other people who crossed Jesus' paths. Do you remember the Canaanite woman, sometimes referred to as the Phoenician woman? She, had, she was begging mercy of Jesus because she had a demon-possessed daughter. And Jesus rebuffed her, saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. But the woman appealed again to him to help her realize that no one else could. And again, Jesus rebukes her in the most degrading way. Verse 24, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Here's the question. Why would our loving Lord speak so harshly to a woman? Any woman. Anyone. That's not the Jesus I know. Is he the one you know? Why was he so hard on her? I thought Jesus saved his wrath for those who were leading people astray. For the religious leaders who misquoted scripture or added extra burdens or extra taxes as we just heard. Why was he so hard on this woman? Unless there was a reason, a loving reason. And wasn't it so that she would finally cross over trying to find a miracle worker to find someone who she would acknowledge as her Lord, who she would worship? You see, at that point, it was amazing Because her response was, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She was not only pleading for her daughter's healing, but she was also seeking God's favor, believing by faith it was right to do so. He had already said, I'm just going to the house of Israel. And she said, no, 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 me too, me too, include me. And Jesus forces her to make that statement of faith and then turns around and says, what great faith. All impediments are removed 
Your daughter is healed. You see, once the spiritual had been met, once her well-being had been satisfied by Jesus, even before that, by faith, she believed that God would provide for her well-being and that of her daughter's. And so she pursued him to remove the impediment that was keeping her away, that was keeping her at arm's length. And this loving Savior kept on going, come on, keep coming, keep coming. You're nearly there. Say it fully. And when she does, he rewards her by saying, that is great faith. You've understood. What didn't he say was that you are a child of God. And yet that's exactly what is understood. Jesus used the physical need to press the woman's faith beyond trust in a snobby miracle worker and to recognize and express her confidence in Jesus as a loving master of both Jew and Gentile. When Cora Hogue, excuse me, when Cora Coop was on staff here at church, she had gone to a mission conference and met a pastor, a Chinese pastor who had been in prison for many, many years. This man was an amazing evangelist and pastor, and even in prison, he took care of his people. He would go around to the huts at nighttime, even though he was completely exhausted. And he would encourage them with words of scripture. He would teach them from the word he'd memorized and he would sing hymns. And every time he opened his voice to sing hymns, he would be beaten by the guards who were close at hand. But he never backed away. And one day, one day there was the unenviable task of going into the middle of a cesspool to clean out the drain. And he volunteered immediately. And everyone kind of looked at him and went, Pastor? And he said, this is great. And he goes into the middle of the cesspool and he starts singing hymns as loudly as he can because he knows the guards are not coming that far into the cesspool. They can't touch him all day long. And he sang at the top of his lungs knowing that he was going to be beaten to an inch of his life when he got out of the cesspool. But for those few hours, anyone who could hear his voice would be able to praise God with him. Sometimes we don't always see or understand the impediments that there are to real worship. What impediments are there in your hearts? I know I'm singing to the choir. You're here on a Sunday worshiping our God. But sometimes we need to see the impediments in other people's lives so that we can pray for them so that we can ask our Jesus to help remove those impediments. Finally, our last snapshot is the reading that we had today in John 14. Earlier in chapter 14, right at the beginning, this is wedding language. don't know if you know. After, a, after the engagement, the bride would go and live with her future in-laws. And the groom was supposed to go and start preparing their future house. If the groom's father was a wealthy person, he may have had property that he could give to his son so as to help provide, and then they could renovate. 
Today in Jerusalem, there is still an interesting law on the books. If you are building a house, when you get to the top floor and you finish the house, there is quite a hefty tax which is laid. So the dodge is you bend the rebar over and you say, well, we're not finished. A child might come along who needs a place to stay. And so the tax is deferred. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you know, you can be guaranteed. If I'm going to do that, I'm coming back to get you. You don't have to fear. You don't have to fear because you know where I'm going, what I'm doing, and the fact that I'll be back. Don't you love the disciples? So good. They are such wonderful foils. And Thomas plays it perfectly. And he says, we don't know the direction, Lord. And Jesus responds, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, except through my death and resurrection. No one can come to heaven. No one. Sin has barred that door. I'm the one who's going to open it. (laughs) I'm going to shatter it. No, it's me. But listen, when I get through that door, I'm not staying. I'm coming back so that we can be together forever. That's marriage language. Thomas Akempis, a saint from yesteryear, said, Follow thou me, I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way there is no going. Without the truth there is no knowing. Without the life there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Now here's where Philip's two cents really pay off. He says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough, verse 8. Philip, what are you asking? Do you think that it's more important to know the Father than the Son? Is that the idea? Do you think the Holy Grail is knowing the Father, period, and now you can leave off the Son? What are you saying, Philip? But you know, it's so much like us that we want direct access to God. Do you remember Moses in the wilderness asking if he could see God? And God says, well, no, I can let you see the backside. Through his teaching, Jesus not only delineates the three persons of the Godhead, but in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2.9. You see, what we need to see is this full picture. One of my former professors, I think, is correct when he writes, Jesus' question is tinged with sadness. If his his opponents did not recognize who he is, it's because they have not been taught by God. They have not listened to the Father. If those closest to him still display similar ignorance of who he is, despite loyalty to him, they attest their profound spiritual blindness. But it's through Philip's question that we actually get to learn more. Who would have thought about the idea 
that not just in appearance, and not even that, but rather that the Father and the Son are in each other. This is the declaration that Jesus is saying. He didn't come as an envoy. Jesus declares, I am your God. I will save you. I will provide for your well-being. I will remove the impediments to worship. I am your God. Come. 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 Worship. Come. Be free. Come and rest in this truth that I am all you need. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that this will not only be the truth that we confess, but rather the truth that is seen in our lives, that as people look at us, they will see that there is an unimaginable confidence and trust in you because you are our God. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.